0: You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello yoga teacher. Today I'm excited to have Kaya Midland back on the podcast. You might remember her from the episode about her unique teacher-centered yoga studio business model. Kaya is an incredibly well-educated and brilliant teacher who's been living the teachings of yoga for over 20 years. Today, she's going to share with us how the ancient teachings from the Bhagavad Gita apply to the modern problems of burnout and spiritual bypassing. I think we all know what burnout is, and if you're not familiar with the term spiritual bypassing, she explains it in the interview. If you like what Kaya has to say, stay tuned after the interview because I'm going to share a special offer for learning from her just for our community. One of the things that has surprised me the most about working with yoga teachers from all around the world is how many of us teeter on the edge of burning out. This is a story that I hear over and over. Maybe you've heard it too, or maybe you've even experienced parts of it yourself. You take yoga teacher training because yoga has had a huge healing impact on your life. Once you graduate, you pour your heart into teaching. Teaching yoga in an authentic way is harder than you ever imagined, and you feel like somewhat of an imposter sharing these sacred teachings. So you take more and more trainings, hoping to finally feel qualified to teach. You spend so much time planning your classes that you sometimes neglect your beloved personal practice. Most yoga studios only offer one or two classes at a time. So you end up running around from studio to studio and barely make ends meet. You probably have another job to pay the bills at the same time as you're struggling financially, doubting your ability as a teacher and working your tail off. You feel pressure to always be positive and put on a happy face. You imagine that if people knew how much you doubted yourself, they probably wouldn't trust you enough to come to class. Part of you believes that a real yoga teacher wouldn't feel so many negative emotions. Okay, that's the story. That is the situation. That's the story we tell ourselves. But the truth is most yoga teachers have some real emotional struggles, not just because we're human, But because this is what drives us to yoga in the first place, if you're naturally more easygoing, if you're difficult to perturb, yoga is just going to be one more pleasant activity in your life. It's not going to stand out as much. It's those of us with the bigger mental disturbances, the more challenge in managing our minds that find the most relief in the practices of yoga. This is definitely going to vary person by person, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that the naturally internally peaceful yoga teacher is the exception, not the majority. And just because you practice a lot, it's going to help your mind. It's going to help you manage your mind, but you're never going to do it perfectly. That would be happening at the end of your life when you die, basically. If we can start from the common understanding that we do all struggle and that we seek yoga to ease our pain, we can be a lot more honest with each other. And by being honest, when we're real about who we are and what we're struggling with, I think it relieves some of the pressure and it actually helps us to not feel so close to burnout. As a teacher, there is a balance. You don't want to complain or overshare about your struggles with your students. There's an appropriate amount to talk about it. But when you do talk about how yoga has helped you, be honest about what the before picture looked like and be real about what's still a work in progress. What is wonderful about the Bhagavad Gita as a text is that it's the most practical yogic text I know of. It's about yoga in action. How do you take the teachings of yoga and apply them to real-life situations. That is what the rest of this episode is about, so let's jump into the conversation with Kaya Mindlin. So happy to have you on the podcast again. The last episode that we did about the teacher-centered yoga studio was such a popular and well-received podcast, and I really enjoyed having you on. So thanks for coming back to talk about the Bhagavad Gita and spiritual bypassing and burnout. (laughs) All
1: of that. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back with you.
0: Let's start by diving into why the Bhagavad Gita? What makes this such an important text that you really feel called to share it and use it? Um, I mean, I love
1: all of the texts of the Vedic tradition, Um, but I have a very special love for the Bhagavad Gita because all of the other texts of this tradition, like Patanjali Yoga Sutras as an example, which is so well known in the yoga world, um, and the, the many Upanishads, are supposed to be, those are teachings that were designed to be conveyed, say, quote unquote, in the forest for people living um, in the later stages of life, usually, who have renounced the world, they've taken care of their worldly responsibilities, and they're living in a serene, quiet environment, dedicating their life full time to spiritual pursuit. The Bhagavad Gita is the one text that takes those teachings down from the mountaintop and brings them right into the center of your life, including the center of the most stressful, chaotic, uh, (laughs) disturbed moments of your life. And most people are living a life in the world, and that includes yoga teachers. And this text became especially beloved to me when I was, teaching it in the midst of just having had my second child. I was literally teaching the Gita while breastfeeding my baby. I mean I was fully with a you know with a freaking out three and a half year old, you know, somewhere else in the background. So I was so deep in the throes of it and those teachings really came alive for me at that moment.
0: So burnout and spiritual bypass, these are kind of modern terms. And I'm curious if you think that they're really a product of the age that we live in? Or do they have roots in more timeless issues? So one of the things I love about the
1: Gita is I think um, it it's such a whole and complete teaching contained in there. It's described as the nectar of all of the Upanishads. Um, and I, I would be hard-pressed to find any modern problem that doesn't have a connection to or an answer in the Bhagavad Gita, including burnout and spiritual bypass. And when we use, we can use those modern terms and then find them maybe described in a different way, but the, the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita is really an extreme example of extreme burnout very quickly followed by an attempt at spiritual bypass. And the whole rest of the text is um, Krishna guiding his student, Arjuna, through that process of recovering from the burnout and having a different viewpoint about life that would prevent him from doing a spiritual bypass.
0: So can you share a little bit more about the specific context in the story of what, what is leading Arjuna to burnout,
1: In the Mahabharata, which is the great epic story in which the Bhagavad Gita is the heart of that story. It happens in the center of it. Most listeners would know that. During the Mahabharata, a long series of events happens that has Arjuna ending up on a battlefield. And he has been trying everything he can to avoid this battle, including being banished from his kingdom for 12 years and and living uh, incognito for one of those years and... Um, negotiating again and again and again to try to prevent a war from happening. And so um, by the time he's on the battlefield, the, there's sort of the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, which is that, as most people know, he looks upon the opposing side of the war and his own side, and he sees on both sides his friends and loved ones, his teachers and his great-grandfather and his cousins and brothers. And he realizes that this or it seems to him to be just there's no good result can come of this and so he falls to the ground in total despair and goes through a, a tailspin and this is an extreme version of what we would call burnout or depletion in modern terms you've you've worked and you've worked and you've worked you've pushed and you've pushed and you've pushed you've tried and tried and tried and there's just nothing left anymore and very quickly he starts to then rationalize his way out of the circumstance in which he finds himself and there is the spiritual bypass because what happens is when he falls to the ground in despair krishna first chides him to get up and and then and convinces him in numerous ways to get up and later shares with him the teaching that you are the unchanging self, you are the changeless self, and the knowledge of that will save you from this deep despair. And this is not a new teaching to Arjuna. He's born into this culture and has heard this culture, you know, at an intellectual level many, many times. So what he does to rationalize is say, well, if I am the primordial self Changeless, regardless of what happens. And if the knowledge of that is what will save me from despair, then I should leave this circumstance, go off into the forest, and essentially meditate and contemplate until I realize the self. And that will solve my problem. And that's spiritual bypass, right? I take a spiritual teaching about sort of ultimate being and I use that to avoid my
0: feelings or my circumstance. That's what he does. So that's really interesting, the connection to this stress of war to burnout, because I think we tend to think of burnout as this really modern affliction that, you know, oh, in the past, things were much simpler. We didn't have as much stimulus. But what I'm Thinking about as I listen to this, is well, yeah, that was true for a small segment of the population, but for the vast majority of humans trying to survive on our planet, for the vast bulk of history, life was incredibly stressful and they had to work much harder than they were even capable of working just to survive. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate. That perspective of of remembering that, you know, even though we do have certain forces in our lives right now that are modern and seem to be, you know, not helping us, you know, seem to be pushing us towards burnout, towards unhappiness, that our actual circumstances, our actual empowerment is increased.
1: I do think that maybe, of course, you know, neither of us were there (laughs) once upon a time, but I do think that the problem of burnout is more compounded now and more insidious because on the one hand, once upon a time in say ancient times, life was much less comfortable. There were real, you know, threats to, to your biology on a regular (laughs) basis. Um, And Yet now, life for most people is relatively comfortable in so many ways, and yet there are so many insidious ways in which we're constantly under stress and never get a chance to turn ourselves off and and have lost a value for the opposite of depletion. We've lost a value for deep nurturance, and even in yoga practice, we see a lot of the popular yoga styles today are actually have depletion built into them. You know, there's a lot of um, push and force and over-athleticism and then like a short little recovery at the end in the form of shavasana. Sort of. So the balance is quite off. We don't we don't really have a lot to balance our burnout. But the problem is the same. The, the, the burnout thing is that we are, or what causes it, is that we feel dissatisfied and insecure that's a timeless problem that's the human condition we all feel incomplete insecure not good enough dissatisfied and if you doubt that you can think about it in terms of you know if any listener doubts well I feel satisfied I feel confident I feel secure think about if you feel happy all the time No, nobody feels happy all the time. And yet everybody wants to feel happy all the time. We feel dissatisfied at times. And then what we do is we we want permanent happiness, but we run through the world chasing impermanent objects and experiences, hoping that those are going to give us permanent happiness. And they never do. So we you know, we achieve one thing, it makes us happy briefly, and then right away we're on to the next, or we don't get it, and then we're miserable, and we try again. And so there's this constant chase, which is running us ragged. And I, I do think it, it's really compounded now, maybe more than once upon a time, because We're under the impression in modern times that anything is possible and you could have what you want. If you just work hard enough and look what they have, just open up your social media and see what everybody else is accomplishing and getting and having. And if I could only have that, then I too would be permanently happy. So I do think it's a timeless problem that's maybe very exaggerated in this moment in time.
0: Are these two concepts really connected then where the very things that lead us, you know, the very feeling of lack and not happy enough that lead us to burnout also lead us to seek the spiritual bypass? I think for
1: people that get, that are lucky enough to get access to spiritual teachings of some kind, then I think there's a connection. Because what happens is we we're burning ourselves out. We're running ourselves ragged. We get exposure to say some yogic teachings about vairagya, non-attachment, about the self, um, and the the possibility that there's a happiness through the recognition of the of the self or as consciousness itself or the divine. And so then, what some people do, which is so un, which is so common, is to say, "Oh, hey." I see the problem. The problem that's caused my burnout is the world, is the objects of the world, is the is the pursuit. And so if I just trade in my pursuit of worldly things for my pursuit of a spiritual life, then I will resolve my problem. <laughs> then I'll feel okay. So it, for people that get, quote unquote, get spiritual, then I think they quickly go from or easily go from burnout just like arjuna does on the battlefield i feel despair but wait a minute if i just jump over my circumstance and my feelings and try to you know meditate it away or yoga
0: it away or omit it away then i'll be okay makes sense and since you brought up the term vairagya Did I wait? Vairagya is that better? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Vairagya. (laughs) I love the way that you describe that teaching. So will you share that with us?
1: Yes, sure. So it's most people will have heard it translated as non-attachment, which is an okay translation. Except because of this burnout spiritual bypass problem, it's not the best translation. The literal meaning of the word vairagya is. Non-coloring. So what it means is that we, to do to, to practice Vaidagya or live in accordance with Vaidagya, is to not give objects of the world, and that includes people and experiences, not give the objects of the world the wrong color or the wrong value. So when we just say non-attachment, it gives the wrong impression that we should not be attached to anything and everything. But the truth of this teaching is that what we should do with vairagya is to recognize the value of things as they are. In other words, your home has a value. It has the value of keeping you safe and warm and protected from the elements. Your closest relationships have a value. And, and so from the things that are closest and, and most meaningful to you, those things that you have a special relationship with, they have a value all the way down to the things that you could sort of take it or leave it. They have less of a value. So you color things in accordance with their true value, but you give nothing the value of being responsible for your happiness. That's Vairagya. So then I can have a natural attachment to my children, to my spouse, to having enough money, you know, to put food on the table, to certain comforts. I can have an attachment to having a tea every morning. But vairagya means I give those the value that is apt, but I give none of those the color of containing my happiness. And this is a practice until it becomes, until you know the self as the self-satisfied self. And then it's very natural. Once you're deeply self-satisfied because you recognize the self as it is, then you remain the same, whether you have, like I know Madot loves coffee. If Madot woke up enlightened one day, she would remain the same with or without her coffee. She would remain still deeply self-satisfied right? You, Maddo, would remain deeply self-satisfied with or without the coffee, but you would
0: still have the coffee because you have a natural value for an affinity for coffee. One of the things that I notice some people when they hear the teaching of Vairagya is this fear of like, oh, well, then I'm... It's like the fear of the spiritual bypass. Well, then I won't be alive anymore. Then what, what will be the point of my life? And the first thing I say to them is, do you honestly think that you are in any danger of becoming overly not attached anytime (laughs) soon. Like how long do you think that's going to (laughs) take? I do, I do think that, you know, that, that sharing the teaching using this language of coloring appropriately, giving each piece of your life, it's appropriate place. I think that's an easier concept or an easier thing to relate to for a lot of people.
1: And it's really more realistic. And you're right. I mean, none of us truly are becoming so non-attached that we're going to evaporate or something. Um, But on the other hand, when we don't understand properly what Vairagya means, we end up with a lot of um, modern yogis that have a complex Because they hear the teaching of non-attachment and then when they find themselves being attached to something or having a desire, they beat themselves up on the inside. Now they have a complex, you know, because I'm not supposed to have that desire. I'm supposed to be non-attached because I call myself a yogi.
0: Curious about your thoughts about permanent Uh, samadhi.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it depends on the text you're looking at, but I go with...
0: Yeah. So I'm no, going
1: to say I about my, your thought. Based on my studies with my teacher, Swami Dayananda, who taught Vedanta philosophy. Uh, I shouldn't use that word philosophy, Vedanta teachings. So from that perspective, which is the perspective of the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad Gita is technically a primary text of Vedanta. Um, the perspective is that once you know something, you can never unknow it. And so the If you can say goal, (laughs) the goal is the recognition of the truth of your being, what is called Swarupa in um, Patanjali Yoga Sutra. Um, It's called Brahma Vidya, the knowledge of the self as the big, as that primordial being. Once you know that, you come to know that, you can't unknow it in the way that if you're in a dark closet and then all of a sudden you turn the light on, you see what's in the closet, even if the light goes out again or you leave the closet, you don't ever unknow what you experienced or what you saw. And so in that sense, and it's more than just a glimpse though, enlightenment or self-knowledge or Brahma Vidya, once you truly know the self as it is, and what my, my teacher would call the self-satisfied self, you don't unknow it. And so that remains permanent. Though the body, mind, and life at the level of manifestation continue to go through all of the changes, amidst that, in the midst of all of those changes, and even in the midst of the sadnesses, the griefs that happen in life, and the joys, the ups and downs at the level of manifestation, you remain knowing the self as the the self-satisfied self.
0: So is it more that this permanent samadhi state is achievable but just very rarely? Or are you saying that anyone who feels as though they have touched that feeling of wholeness might have the veils dropped back down, but they can more easily and more easily get back to that feeling practice. <clears throat> I think practice. that, um, first of all, I'm
1: going to differentiate from the word um, samadhi state, because that samadhi is a state. And that's different from what in Patanjali is called Kaivalya and what in Vedanta might be called Brahma Vidya, which is the, the true self-recognition. And it's not a state because it's changeless. I think along the way, once we get, once we, you know, become a yogi, get exposed to these teachings and practices, um, and even without them, we all have glimpses and tastes of it, even if we don't have a name for it prior to, say, yoga. Once you have yoga, you have a name for those glimpses that we get of the self. And that's really the purpose of yoga And my uh, from my perspective is to get that glimpse, that taste, that experience again and again and again, let it let, let it leave an imprint, so to speak. But ultimately, um, the tradition that I say grew up in <laughs> um, is says that ultimately that recognition, becomes permanent. It becomes what is your, what is normal to you. There's no leaving it even in the midst of all of the activities of life. And until then you get glimpse after glimpse after glimpse and it becomes then stable. And that's when it's stable, that's what you could call enlightenment or Kaivalya. The difference is I think in Patanjali, technically you have to be dead for Kaivalya. So whereas <laughs> without- yeah. It's sort of, you drop the body. You're almost there. And the final thing is you drop the body and then you're in Kaivalya. Whereas Vedanta, that's a Sankhya perspective. And Vedanta would say, with or without the body, you are that that primordial presence anyway. And so you can come to recognize it. In fact, the only way to come to recognize it is in the, the blessed or lucky opportunity to have a human birth. So.
0: Okay. Great. Thank you for taking that detour with me. And I'll wrap it back around to our topic now. What can modern yogis, modern yoga teachers do to prevent spiritual bypass and burnout?
1: The most basic thing to prevent burnout is really at the most basic level to take good care of yourself. You know, And you can start with your yoga practice. Use your yoga practice as a means of, of loving yourself, of taking good care of yourself, of deep nurturance And then you can do that in many other ways in your life with food, with your schedule. You know, you literally do have to stop some of the things that you're doing in order to resolve burnout. You have to nurture and nourish yourself and take time and close the computer and turn your phone off and all of those things. You definitely have to do that. Um, But then (laughs) you still have responsibilities to do in life. And so when you have to interface with your life, which is most of the time, how to do that and not be doing a spiritual bypass and not burn yourself out, the the remedy when you're in your life is that you do your responsibilities, you do the duties that are in front of you to do, but you don't do them expecting I don't want to say the word expecting, you expect results from your action, but you don't expect the results of your action to make you happy because this is where we burn ourselves out. We go. So I just came out of teaching for, for two full long days. And I, that was my duty to do for those two days. So I show up, I do the job that's put in front of me to do to the best of my ability but I don't get to control how it goes. In fact, there was a snowstorm threatening where, where the location of where this program was and it almost could have gotten canceled. And, you know, um, people may not have flown in for it because of the weather threat. And then who knows whether, you know, what happens during the day, someone gets violently ill or I lose my voice, you know, all of these things can happen. So. I do the duty in front of me to do. I do my best. I I have an expectation of myself to do a good job, but I don't make my happiness dependent on how it goes. Whether it goes well or it goes badly, I practice a capacity to, to not have my state be dependent on how it goes. I do the job and I leave the results up to the the laws of the universe and however it goes, I move on. That's how to live a life without, because if you're not doing that, this is where we get up to burnout. If I'm dependent on how it goes and it doesn't go well, then I immediately go home and start trying to fix the problem to make myself feel better because my how I feel was dependent on how this action went. If it doesn't go the way I wanted it to go, then I feel badly because my state is dependent on how things go. Then I burn myself out trying to fix the problem or trying to plan something else that will make
0: me feel better. If that makes sense. Definitely. And is that the same for spiritual bypass? Right. So it is the same for spiritual
1: bypass in that, in that you don't run away from your responsibilities, in that you do what's in front of you to do because really there's no such thing as a life free from responsibilities. They will come and find you <laughs> and your emotions will come and find you. Even if you do run off to the forest, they're sitting there waiting for you. And so you may as well, what what Krishna essentially says in the Gita is you may as well stay in the world and deal with yourself here (laughs) because you have to deal with yourself anyway. And life gives you such wonderful opportunities to see what's really going on in your mind and your emotions and your reactions and so on so that you can resolve them. So The remedy for spiritual bypass is yes, stay in the world, do what's in front of you to do, do your duty, do it well to the best of your ability, free from being dependent on how, you know, the results of what happens, not, um, and, and, and not trying to run away from your responsibilities with or your emotions with spirituality as the scapegoat or the reason that you're doing it. So it is all tied together in my mind. And I will say that, um, you know, the Bhagavad Gita gives the most intense example in terms of the circumstance in which Arjuna finds himself. And that's wonderful because we can know that these teachings will be applicable to all of us if we, God forbid, have to face a, a dire circumstance in life. But to practice these teachings of vairagya and not doing a spiritual bypass and not burning yourself out or not being being dependent on the results of your actions to make you feel good about yourself, to practice that, I always recommend that you start with something really simple and easy, you know? So doing the dishes, do a good job. But don't be dependent on, don't have your, your feelings about yourself, be dependent on whether you did a perfect job or not. Be the same either way. And don't burn yourself out trying to make everything as perfect as possible.
0: <laughs> okay, this is wonderful and it's easier said than done. So what, what are the actual steps? Maybe I'll put it in the context of a more intermediate circumstance. Not something so simple as the dishes, but we're all yoga teachers here and many yoga teachers report that their state of mind, and I have experienced this, it depends on how my class went. You know, how do people look when they walk out of class? I walked in there. I think I did my absolute best in that moment that I was able to do. And then maybe it wasn't a good match, you know, for the students in the room for whatever reason. How do we actually practice Vairagya in that or any other circumstance?
1: Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. That's a good example to use. So um, there's a lot there, and I will say that there is a very there is a very specific process or means to to living life in accordance with what we're talking about, and it's really the teaching of what is Karma Yoga, but that's the whole first six chapters of the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> And I do teach that, but it would, t- you know, it takes many, many hours to really lay out exactly what the steps are. So we'll do this, and we'll do just like a more digestible thing with with your example, which is a great example. One thing to do, one place to start is where a lot of yoga teachers get caught up is in wanting to be liked. I feel good when I'm liked. And I don't feel good when I think someone doesn't like me. And this dictates a lot of the teaching choices that teachers make. What I'm going to teach, how I'm going to sequence, how I even talk to the students and so on is dictated by wanting to be liked. And that is because I've, th- that will make me feel good if I'm liked. So the first thing you can do is take that out of the equation altogether. Do not use your teaching in order to feel liked. Don't give it that color. Give it the color of being a livelihood or being, or, you know, if you're a full-time yoga teacher, if you're a new yoga teacher, give it the color of in-the-field experience. You know, give it the right color. And then make your teaching choices not based on will you like me or am I likable, but based on what is appropriate in this moment. That's teaching in accordance with Dharma, which is to do the right thing. And Dharma has nothing to do with whether I'm liked or whether this is comfortable for everybody. And so, and I don't mean comfortable in terms of asana, but emotionally comfortable. So make your teaching choices, your sequencing choices, how you talk to students based on as to the best of your ability. Is this appropriate? Is this beneficial? Is this apt? not will I be liked. And that takes care of a lot of the mess.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I think that many yoga teachers would not describe themselves as doing that. So I think the first step would be to ask yourself and to notice, am I doing this to be liked? How much of this am I doing to be liked?
1: So I'll give an example. One thing that that I've seen teachers do is they'll write a sequence that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I'll say, well, why are you doing these poses? Because, say, you said this class was about low back pain, but you put X, Y, Z in there. It doesn't make sense to me. Can you say why you're putting those in the sequence? And they will say, because I think the students will like it. And what they're not saying is, if they like it, they'll like me. But you don't even have to take it as far as wanting to be liked if that's hard to really face, but that is a natural, you know, human tendency and desire is the the want to be liked. Um, But you could at least think about it in terms of not having your students' likes and dislikes dictate what you teach. Like, so I'll hear teachers say, you know, I think that these students could really use something more restorative right now. I've noticed my students being stressed and I know they'll benefit from something restorative, but I don't think they'll like it. And then we tell this whole story and then if they don't like it, they won't like me and they won't come back and I won't make any money or I won't become a, you know, I won't become a full-time teacher or whatever. There's all this. And you see how very quickly you start to burn yourself out. Then you get a spiritual teaching and then you go, you quickly bypass. You go, okay, none of this matters. I should be non-attached. Let me just meditate until I feel okay about it (laughs) or whatever people do. So don't make your teaching choices in your planning and in the room. Either think about according to likes and dislikes, Raga and Visha. Those who have studied Patanjali Yoga Sutras should
0: be out of the equation. What this reminds me of is this confidence in the practice. Mm. That if you really are confident in what you're teaching, then you don't have to worry about whether or not any individual students like your teaching, mm-hmm. because you know you're teaching something very powerful and profound and life-changing. And somebody else, if not these people, somebody else will appreciate them, the teaching.
1: That's right.
0: And you may be blocking or cutting yourself off from the students who would be most attracted to your most authentic teachings by teaching things that you think people like or are popular. That's right.
1: And that's dharma. That's living in it. Part of the remedy to this whole problem is living in accordance with dharma, do it in including your individual duty and purpose. What Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna when he's trying to spiritual bypass his situation is he says, it is better to do your duty, even if imperfectly, than to do someone else's dharma. It is better to do what is truly what you are here to do even if you're not that great at it yet <laughs> because if you do it you will become great at it as great as you're supposed to be at it but you will be in alignment and so that's true and and if you're not sure what that is right now it's what's in front of you to do or it's what that voice inside your head is saying you know these students will benefit from restorative yoga right now even if they don't realize what it's that it's what they like or want and If you are confidently at least leaning into the the choices that you're making, if you're saying, um, even if you don't feel conscious yet, you actually fake it till, I mean confident yet, you fake it till you make it in a sense. Even with these profound teachings, that accounts for fake it till you make it. So you say, this is uncomfortable for me, but I'm going to make the choice to do what I think is right or what I think is beneficial, what I think is healthy even if it's a little uncomfortable. And just by virtue of making that choice confidently, people will very much resonate with what you're doing. And guess what? They will like you for it. But (laughs) your state should remain the same whether they like you for it or not. But they will because, because people resonate with a teacher giving them what is truly beneficial to them. And then you, you can talk about why you're doing it so that they cultivate a value for what you're doing.
0: But I think what you're describing is not fake it till you make it because fake it till you make it is more like, this is what I see working from other people and I don't know what's going on inside me. So I'm just gonna do that, mm. right? Yeah. But what you're talking about is, first of all, taking the time to contemplate and, and make the best decision you can and then be upfront about what you actually know and who you actually are yeah. and what you don't know right. and who you're not. Yeah, so maybe it's not fake it till you make it. It's just do it. <laughs> and it's okay to not be perfect and it's okay to not have all the answers i mean i think that's the essence of what you're saying is be where you are be where you are do what is truly resonant for you what is your duty to do
1: what you think will be beneficial to others because that's what we're in this for is to do things that are beneficial to others we're not in this to be liked we're not in this to do what's likable. You know, I use the analogy of, of children, of course, a lot because I, it's in my face. <laughs> They're in my face. You know, with your children, those who have children, or you know, who, even if you've just taken care of a child, just because the child wants to stay up till midnight doesn't mean you allow it. Or just because the child wants to have chocolate cake for breakfast doesn't mean that you're going to do that. And it's the same with your yoga students. They may want to do jumping jacks, but is that what's appropriate? Is that what's beneficial to them? And you could even say that to them <laughs> because guess what? They're on the burnout wheel too. And that's why I use this restorative yoga as an example, you know, because if you start talking in these terms and say, look, I'm, you just, as you said, you're upfront with it. I know what you guys wanna do is 108 sun salutations, but I'm looking at your bodies and what I'm seeing is that th- what will really benefit you is a longer yoga nidra today. And that's what we're going to do. And it's going to be so good for you. And you just do it. (laughs) And you're right, it takes more time. It takes contemplating. But that's a good remedy for for burnout and spiritual bypass as well because we burn ourselves out when when we don't take enough time, when we just go, 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 go. And we do spiritual bypass as well when we don't take the time to realize we're doing it. So you do have to slow yourself down and make um, deliberate choices. So that's another piece of, you know, what you're saying, well, how do you do this? The other piece of it is to slow down and be deliberate in
0: your life. Easier said than done. (laughs) Easier said than done, but wise advice. And I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but don't you have a longer course on the Bhagavad Gita coming up soon? I'll be teaching the fuller teaching of karma yoga. That's the first
1: six chapters of the Bhagavad Gita and it's called the nectar of action. So it's really, I first I tell a redux version of the Mahabharata, which is really fun. It's a lot of drama. (laughs) And then we dive into the first six chapters of the Gita. And this is the primary teaching for living a wise life in the midst of all of the stresses and activities and responsibilities of life, how to live your life as a process of spiritual growth itself. And so, yeah, that's called the nectar of action that's coming
0: up. You have a website, so...
1: Yeah, Yoga with Kaya. Actually, if you go to Yoga with Kaya and you click on either programs for teachers or programs for everyone because this particular course is for dedicated yogis and teachers you'll find it so Kaya.com. perfect
0: thank you so much kaya this has been a fun conversation i think we did a good job of staying on topic but i mean it blossomed a little bit but in a good it's, way yeah it's all related i agree <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much If you want to dive more deeply into the Bhagavad Gita, Kaya has offered a special discount just for listeners of this podcast. To find out more about the Nectar of Action, go to yogawithkaya.com slash nectar dash of dash action. Of course, I will also link in the show notes. The promo code is GITA Y-T-R, all caps, so G-I-T-A-Y-T-R, and if you enter that, when you register for the Nectar of Action, you'll get $34 off the full price. If you've listened this far, you're probably interested in yoga philosophy in general, so if you're also in easy travel distance from me here in Asheville, North Carolina, I want to invite you to an upcoming weekend on the Yoga Sutras, September 7th and 8th, 2019 this weekend is just for yoga teachers, and it has two intentions. One is to learn techniques for bringing the Yoga Sutras into your yoga classes, and two is to refill your cup of inspiration by practicing and communing with like-minded yoga teachers. I would love to have some podcast listeners attend, so if you're interested, the link for that is ashevillecommunityyoga.com, Up at the top, there's a tab that says trainings. If you click on that, there will be an option to choose the Yoga Sutras training. Also, if you register by August 7th, there's a huge early bird discount. You'll save $100 off the full price. So definitely check that out and get registered ASAP if you want that discount. Again, the link is ashevillecommunityyoga.com. I will spell that out. It's long, A-S-H-E-V-I-L-L-E-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y-Y-O-G-A dot com. The link at the top says trainings. Both links will be in the show notes and the code for Kaya's training will also be in the show notes. I also want to give a listener shout out to Dave who wrote a super sweet review. He said, I just came across your podcast and listened to them while driving on a trip this week. The three-part series on anatomy versus biomechanics was enlightening. Everyone should listen to the self-doubt podcast. Friends of mine are leading teacher trainings, and I want them to hear this and to introduce your website to them. Thank you so much, Dave. I love that you binge listened to a bunch of episodes on a trip. That's an awesome way to get up to speed when you find a new podcast that you really like, so... I'm honored and grateful that you came back to leave this review for me. I also agree that everybody should listen to the self-doubt podcast. That is episode 43, by the way. And thank you so much for sharing the podcast with your friends who are leading teacher trainings. I only wish that I could have had access to similar resources when I did my teacher training 15 years ago. That is a big part of what inspired me to start the podcast in the first place. That is all for this week. Please join me again next week for another episode. Whether you can make the trainings mentioned today or not, I hope you'll continue to explore the rich philosophical tradition of yoga, which is meant to be practiced in your everyday life and does make that life a little bit sweeter. I also hope that today's episode has inspired you to work on making peace with where you are right now. Even as you work to become a better yoga teacher and become a better human, the first step is really to make peace with now.